Welcome to It's a Nice Place to Brew with Jason and George, a show about all things beer and beer making. Gentlemen, please broadcast responsibly. Welcome to A Nice Place to Brew, episode 17. We got a we got a great show planned for you guys today. I am Jason. And I am George. And we are A Nice Place to Brew. We are a uh, homebrew team from the uh, Chicagoland area, and we like to talk about brewing beer, our active projects, uh, beers that we've had, and uh, just all things beer, as the intro says. Uh, we have the... Uh, we have the privilege of having a guest in studio with us today, and we'd like to welcome the founder of the Joliet Brewers Guild, Mr. Joel Rakowski. Hello. How are you, Joel? I'm doing good. How are you? Good, thanks. It's great. Uh, thank you for joining us. No problem. Uh, we, uh, Joel was uh, was kind enough to, uh, to join us recently for a uh, George and I's first collaboration beer. That was your first one? Really? First one, oh, yeah. Geez, all we, right. we were saving it for someone special, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we, uh, the way it worked was we uh, we had a, a recipe that we've made a couple of times that we were particularly happy with, and we thought a uh, a third person and uh, in a in a brain such as Joel's could uh, could bring some good th- things to the batch, and um, cutting uh, and uh, I, I guess an early preview of segment two. Um, needless to say, that uh, that came to fruition very very nicely. We've got a we got a great uh, great beer here to talk about from a from a great brew day and one that we learned a lot from so we've got a lot to cover today we do it's a completely different for, uh, brewing system than what we use uh, we use a gravity brewing system he uses a what's called a herms brewing system herms system yeah with yeah. a single tier so right. you have to use two pumps for the whole setup Yep. So, and then we, you know, messed around with uh, a whole bunch of elements that we don't normally, uh, you know, I don't want to tease a little bit, but not give away what we're going to talk about. So, um, yeah, very interesting day. Uh, a little bit longer of a day for us, but that's okay. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. So, um, yeah. So, let's dive right in. We're in uh, segment one here. Okay, segment one, as, we, as we've done in the past, uh, segment one, we're going to talk about uh, other brews reviewed, uh, beers we've enjoyed in the past and we'd like to kind of talk about. I'm going to ask uh, George to, to kick this off. George, you got one for us? I do. It comes from our friends down at Chicago Brew Works. Uh, their brewing efforts are known as Workforce Brewing. And it was one that I had down there um, just recently when we went and get, got some ingredients for our next brew. And it was... It was very good. It was called Mr. Mainway. This is a 5.5% oatmeal cream stout. Uh, so it's not super high on alcohol and uh, it's a little bit more sessionable than some of them that you would encounter. But it's very creamy, uh, good roasty notes, and a lot of um, good body to it. So it's, a, it's, it's you know, as far as the the oatmeal cream stouts you kind of expect them to be a little bit more silky than you know, your average stout than your average dry stout and this one definitely uh lived up to that expectation so uh definitely recommend it nice nice i tell you yeah chicago brew works they do they do some great stuff in in addition to being an amazing source for brewing supplies we've been using them for years yeah the the brew the uh the beers that they make really impressive they're 
well worthy of the praise that they've gotten and the recent expansion that they're uh, that they're uh, now going through, which is which is awesome. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> sorry ten thousand square foot facility. That's just insane. It's a huge upgrade for them. Yeah, Holy and, cow. and well deserved. No, we're thrilled for them. Anyways, Joel, you got one for us too. Yeah, um, one of my favorites recently that I've had was Hailstorm's Lumberjack Breakfast. It's a thirteen percent imperial stout with coffee and maple syrup. Thirteen percent. Thirteen percent. Holy crap! It's a big yeah, boy. So not quite as sessionable as the other one. No, not exactly. No, no. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the coffee is just huge in this one. It's uh, you know huge coffee aroma, huge coffee flavor, and the maple syrup complements that nicely. And uh, it was a little thin. I was expecting it to be a little bit thicker beer, you know, just with the name Lumberjack Breakfast. You'd think, you know, kind of motor oil type of thing. But, you know, 13%, that's kind of hard to uh, get, you know, a heavy, heavy uh, mouthfeel and high ABV. So Nice. Nice. So, you know, quite often I find that in these coffee stouts that the coffee flavor and the other adjuncts they put in tend to kind of overwhelm the... Uh, the the regular stout flavoring and those roasty notes. Did you kind of catch that in this one as well, or was it well balanced? It was pretty well balanced. Um, yeah, couldn't couldn't say anything better about it. You know, there there has been a lot of astringency issues that I've experienced also with coffee stouts, but nothing like that in this one. Mm, good, nice, nice. I'm going to go into my first one. Uh, my uh, the first beer I'm going to talk about is from a brewery called Saga Talk Brewing Company out of uh, Michigan. Uh, Saga Talk has a pretty good presence here in Illinois. They do some really, really solid beers. Um, going back to uh, Joel being the founder of the Joliet Brewers Guild, I was introduced to this beer at the most recent uh, Joliet Brewers Guild monthly meeting. And the uh, Chicago Street Pub, which is kind enough to host us on a monthly basis, uh, just happened to have this beer on tap. And the beer is called the Neapolitan Milk Stout. It is a 6% 37 IBU milk stout, as the name says. Uh, the details are uh, there's rich flavors of chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry that balance out the smooth characteristics of a creamy milk stout. This is a great, great milk stout. It's very sweet. It's very smooth. Um, for a lower ABV milk stout, it's it's just very drinkable and just a just an all-around great beer. Did uh, Chicago Street have that on nitrous at the time or no? That's a great point. Yes, it was on nitro. Okay. All right. I've tried it both ways, and I think I prefer the non-nitrogenated version, but that's just my own personal preference. So it's probably, well, obviously there's more carbonation in the in the other one. So it's probably a more full type type feel from the uh, from the co2 version hmm. probably yeah okay well um good so um along a similar note of it, of exploring different breweries and and ones that we've encountered you know kind of on the periphery okay. but um not quite as prevalent in our mindset we've been kicking around the idea of going to visit uh this brewery called urban legend um for a very long time you know, we keep saying, we should go. We should do a tour. We should talk to these guys. It's a brewery that's really eluded us for a long time. Yeah. So we decided, screw it. We're out. We're going to stop by and we're going to have a beer. And they're kind of buried back in this um, 
area that it looks like you would turn off to go do a drug deal if you were in high school. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. But when you get back there and you turn into this kind of industrial lot, there is an area of, um, you know, it opens up and there's this area of like really nice, you know, industrial areas and things. And, And tucked back in there is this place that by the time we got to it, it wasn't even called Urban Legend anymore. Now it's called Myths and Legends Brewing, which I think is kind of a neat name, nice name change. They had a copyright issue or something like that that they had to change it. Yeah, there was a a winery out in California that had uh, Urban Legends as their name. Really? Okay. So there you go. Yeah. Um, So they had to change it to Myths and Legends. They kept a lot of their uh, beer names and they kept the, the theme that they were going for, which was beers kind of named after different urban legends and um, legendary figures. Uh, so the one I had was called uh, Monster Under the Bed Barley Wine. Um, you know, for people who have listened to this show before, you'll remember that I'm not a big fan of the barrel-aged beers. I don't really like bourbon in my beer. Um, however, the way they blended the bourbon barrel aspects with the barley wine, it really complemented it very well. And probably the 13 14% alcohol that was in there didn't hurt either. Um, so had that, and you, know, it, it, you get a lot of those um, barrel-aged aspects, but you also get a lot of the barley wine in there. And they, like I said, the two kind of combine very nicely. And it's it's... Unfortunately, I think it's off tap now. I think they're planning on doing it again here soon, but but it's not available right now. But, you know, we had a bunch of the different beers down there. We finally were able to get down and start sampling. And, you know, they've got a pretty good showing, you know, and, and they do a lot of seasonals. But they, they so, you know, when you go back, you'll have different things to try and, and sample. But, um but you know they—they—it's pretty solid brewery in our in our our little area here. Definitely, definitely. So Joel, yeah, what's the second one you got? Ah, uh, the second one I have is Perrin Brewing's No Rules Vietnamese Porter. This is a fifteen percent imperial stout with coconut, cinnamon, and turbinado sugar, aged in bourbon barrels. This thing, as you could tell just by that description, was extremely complex. There was a lot of flavors going on in this thing, and. Uh, I, I never really thought about uh, a stout with coconut and cinnamon together, but that was a, a really outstanding combination of flavors. I'm really going to try to incorporate in one of my beers. 15% barrel-aged cinnamon and coconut. Wow, that's a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's... That is, yeah, it was huge. Um, you know, there was a big alcohol burn. You can't avoid that with a 15%. Yeah, for but, sure. But uh, still. Let me ask a question about that. With a ABV that high, did those flavor notes just kind of get lost in there? No, no. Actually, uh, I, I was surprised that, you know, the only thing that, you, you know, what you'd pick out is that high alcohol burn. But, no, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, uh, good flavors in there, melded well. So I thought it was a really good balance of everything. Nice. Nice. Good deal. 
I'm slightly on pause right now, mostly because my glass needs to needs to become empty very very quickly before I'm. Yeah, before we started, he was very clear <laughs> in the fact that we needed to have our glasses empty by the yeah. time he got to his second beer. And, and I'm I'm looking at his glass here, and he's not even close. Yeah, he's yeah. in third place. I, I'm slacking here. Yeah, <laughs> they're not lying. Anyways, uh, I'm very excited about my third beer, and this is going to be a live tasting. I was recently gifted with a beer from a friend of mine who I work with, and I'll I'll uh, I'll say a thank you on on air for uh, for this guy. This is Brian, who's part of the Urban Knaves of Grain Brew Club here in the Illinois area. Um, he recently uh, made a visit out to Northern California to a brewery called Russian River, uh, who's a a well known and highly respected brewery out in uh, out in that area, and he came back. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna cut out all the silence here, but he came back with a with a beer that he was raving about, and he said, "Jason, you have to try this. You know, g- give this a shot." So I want to say thank you to Brian, and what better place to try this than among two uh, two uh, br- uh, <laughs> two homebrew friends of mine? And here we have oh, here there it is. a beer called Pliny the Elder, which is an <laughs> award-winning double IPA made by Russian River Company. Very nice. Very nice. I've heard of that one before. I never actually knew the brewery that made it. Though. Really? Really? Yeah. I've, I've just always heard, heard the name. It's been one of those kind of mythical, you know, in the ether, everybody knows it, but few have tried it kind of beer it for me. I don't know how accessible this is. I, I don't really. I, I know about the brewery pretty much what I've heard in conversation. I, I don't know if I've come across any beers of theirs here in Illinois. No, you most likely have not. Yeah. Um, they're a very small brewery. They uh, pride themselves on being small and staying small. They don't want to. They they could expand like gangbusters if they wanted to, but they don't want to. They don't want to have all those headaches associated with their company so yeah they're very uh local uh I do, they do distribute in other states but illinois is not one of them currently and um i have a friend who lives about a mile away from russian river and he sends me stuff every now and then so you've had some of the some of their beers before i have and pliny the elder is quite good okay which uh can you name a couple others um shoot or even like the styles that they uh, that they've made that you've, that you've well, found noteworthy. Uh, let's see, their IPAs are always excellent. Okay. Um, I've tried one of their uh, barley wines in the past. That's really good. So can't name any, any actual names of the beers, but well, I'm hoping this is good because this is following our Scotch ale here. So oh. got something to live up to. This is supposedly one of the best IPAs in the country. So I hope you like it. Okay. Wow. So we've really set the table for this. Yeah. <laughs> so while Jason is uh, taking care of this and pouring us beer, um, you know, I was just remarking with Joel that this is a, you know, even the label styling for these guys is, you know, very basic and unassuming. It's a green field label with a red um, circle basically on it with Pliny the Elder in it. You know, nothing too fancy you know not any outrageous artwork or anything and you know if that speaks to their you know methodology when it comes to the beer and clean flavors and such that that speaks well to me i think so yeah they're a pretty much uh, no-nonsense brewery you know there's like we're here we make great beer 
enjoy. We do that's what it. we do, and that's we it. do it well. Yep. Got to respect that. Wow. All right. Aroma Cheers. first. Let's see. A little bit. First thing I get is a ton of hop aroma off of it. You know, the aroma is very, very nice. It is. A little piney, a little citrusy. Not overly bitter. I mean, it's bitter, but not like kick you in the face bitter. Yeah, actually, it's a it's a good balance. Um, you know, we've made a couple IPAs. We don't talk about IPAs a whole lot on the show. We kind of prefer the darker ones because we feel that with the IPAs, it's very easy to just slam it with hops and call it a day. That's not what they've done here. This is very no. balanced. It's very, very. Uh, it's it's got those hop notes without being super bitter. And it's a double IPA, although it's not really, really strong alcohol flavoring. It's like George. I mean, I think that's the best way to say it. It's just very, very balanced. Yeah, which is kind of unusual for West Coast IPA. So, yeah. Well, this is a beer that's well worthy of the praise it has gotten. Russian River, very well done. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up segment number one. We are going to uh, head into uh, segment two, and we're going to talk about our uh, our Scotch Ale Brew Day. So stay with us. I'm not totally against the idea. It just it just hasn't come up yet. <laughs> well, it's come up. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the sense where I'm just like, all right, all right, let me give in. All right, let's soundproof this place. Let's it's you know it's let's go from kind of a part time studio to this is a straight up studio. <laughs> I'm not saying it won't get there at some point because I, I love I love doing this show and I love I love doing recordings. So yeah, it's not out of the question at all. Anyways, welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. We are uh, heading into segment number two. And uh, as we previewed in segment number one, uh, we recently made a Scotch Ale, which was our first collaboration uh, beer made with our friend Joel Rakowski, founder of Joliet Brewers Guild. And uh, it was a first on a lot of levels uh, for us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by, uh, by talking about the, uh, the firsts for us that were, uh, that were part of this brew day. Um. We're going to cover the water additives that were included, which we have not done in the past. Uh, we were introduced to a slower sparge process. We were introduced to uh, a Herms uh, recirculation system, which has been a point of intrigue for us from a, uh, for us for a long time, and uh, also a uh, a yeast starter. So George, w- uh, I'm sorry, Joel was a source of education for us in a big way for this uh, for this brew day, and we've got an amazing product as a result. Well, I'm glad I could help out. Yeah. So let's uh, let's uh, start off, um, to, uh, and we'll go into the uh, we'll talk about the uh, grain profile to kind of get the get the conversation started on this. George. So yeah, so this was a 10 gallon batch, uh, so it was uh, on the larger size for what we typically do. And this is a beer that we were targeting 9.9, so basically 10% alcohol inside of it. So it's not an inconsequential amount of alcohol either. And it's consistent with the style. I mean, the Scotch, a.k.a. We Heavy, is on the higher end. True, true, absolutely. But what it meant for us was crushing it with a lot of grains. 
Oh, yes. So we started out with our base malt, and we put in a lot of Maris Otter, which is one of our favorite grains to work with. you got those nutty kind of characteristics to it, a little bit of breadiness to it. And so we put a ton of Maris Otter in it, um, added in some Cara 45, so 45 Love Bond caramel uh, for some color and flavoring, and then a and then a, uh, a lot, another amount of 120 Lovabond caramel crystal malt. What that allowed us to do was to kick up that color because that has a 120 SRM, so it kicked up the color profile of that quite a bit. For a little bit of body, we added in Munich malt, and for some roasty characters, uh, we added in chocolate malt. And because the profile of a scotch ale is a little bit sweet and a little bit malty, we added in uh, what normally we would add in is honey malt, but uh, due to some inventory issues at our local homebrew supply... We had to make a last-minute change. We changed it out. We changed it out to melanoidin malt, which is very similar, slightly different, um, little just a touch less sweet, but still gets the job done for what we're trying to achieve. So we added in the melanoidin as well. Um, and then um, for our hop additions in the boil, we did uh, Progress and Fuggle, uh, both at one, you know, one of those at 60 minutes and then run right towards the end at 10 minutes. Nice. So let's, uh, let's talk about the brew day just kind of from the very beginning. And I want to go into the water chemistry because the water chemistry was one of the first things that we, um, that we kind of um, – I guess addressed from the very beginning because what's the very beginning of a brew day? It's you know when you strike up the temperature of your water, so that became something that we uh, went into very quickly. I mean, we're not going to go into okay, every, do, do, every do detail. Your thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, with uh, with Joel's understanding of water chemistry. Limited, um, limited understanding of water chemistry. Uh, it's it's a big step up from where we're at. So, <laughs> so uh, you are you are the you are the uh, the man with the knowledge on, on that subject. Okay. So we uh, we we began our our, um, our heating of the water, and we did three different uh, additions to the water in order to maintain a healthy profile. I'm going to list list these out, and I'm going to ask Joel to kind of uh, interject here and and kind of give some details about the reasoning behind these three additions. We added lactic acid, we added uh, gypsum, and calcium chloride. Mm -hmm. Um, Lactic acid was added just to bring the pH down because uh, for this particular batch, we were using a blend of 50% local tap water and 50% reverse osmosis water. And even with that 50-50 blend, uh, the pH hardness of uh, the local tap water is so high that you still have to use lactic acid to bring that pH level down. So that was the lactic acid. Uh, The gypsum was used uh, to balance out uh, some of the minerals. Uh, Let's see here. Hold on a second. Gypsum is usually used to balance out uh, if your if your um, calcium levels are a bit low for a particular water profile so we added gypsum to bring that number up and then finally the calcium chloride does a number of things um, <clears throat> it brings uh, the pH down as well and it also um, affects the 
chloride to sulfite ratio, which affects the um, maltiness or the bitterness of a beer. If you have a low chloride to sulfite ratio, it enhances bitterness. If you have a high chloride to sulfite ratio, it enhances maltiness. Nice. No, thank you. Um, so w- once we did those additions, we we found a healthy profile for the water we were going to make, and we went in with the uh, with the mash. Um, we did a uh, we did our our, uh, our double infusion mash, which has become kind of our go to because of the added efficiencies that it creates. Um, so we'll go into kind of some issues that we had with uh, with the mash, and we believe we identified the the source of the issue. And we had uh, we had to come kind of come up with a last minute game plan on how we we're going to compensate for for the limitations we had in, in the initial mash. Uh, George, you want to go into some detail on that? Sure. Sure. So when we're looking at the mash and we um, you know put all the grains in the in the bin, uh, by the time they were in there and they were already you know from residual water that was in the the barrel and they were already kind of a little wet. Um, it became a little bit too late for us to make some adjustments, but unfortunately, the crush on the grains that we had um, wasn't quite as complete as we were hoping for. So when we went on and did our mash, we brought it up to our typical sacrification rest of about 120, 223 degrees. And then using Joel's Herm system, we recirculated it through. Um, Herms recirculate. Can we go into some detail about kind of what a Herm systems, uh, system is and, and how it works? Uh, sure. Let's see. The Herm system is uh, used for recirculating your mash constantly throughout the mashing process. So it does that for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is to make sure that the, the temperature of the mash stays at a nice uh, comfortable degree or whatever you want to set it at. It can also be adjusted up or down. Uh, in the middle of a mash if you need to do that for some reason and it also really at the end of the process really provides a a super clean uh, protein free um, wort that's going into your boil kettle. Now it would be fair to say that it also helps to eliminate hot and cold spots in the in the mash as well? Oh sure definitely. Yeah okay Uh, I know it's a common problem for homebrewers we 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 try to solve that in our system by just kind of stirring the the mash every now and again to kind of even out those temperatures um but with a herm system with that constant recirculation that that helps to even that out so yeah so we we increased the temperature in the um lauder ton and ran the wort through the developing wort through the herm system to raise the temperature up to 153 degrees so that we can get the kind of body that we're looking for with our um, with our beer, and then once we hit that, we left it at that temperature and we let it sit at that for an, another half hour uh, to finish our mash. Um, when we took a sample of the mash and put it through Joel's refractometer, unfortunately, we found that it was a little low. Um, it was very low. Uh, wait, okay, yeah, I'm being a little generous. It was very low. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, yes, it was. So we um, we looked at that and we said, okay, how are we going to compensate for this? Because we wanted to achieve the the alcohol content and the flavor to to best match the profile, which which is very key for something like like a Scotch ale wee heavy. I mean, r- really, the grain profile is everything. 
Yeah, so because you have a lot of that multi-characteristic and not a whole lot of the hops. So right. you want to make sure that those multi-characteristics that people are looking for are in that beer. Um, so what we did was we take uh, we, we decided to um, add a little bit, and we've discussed this on previous shows, we added a little bit of uh, the dry malt extract to help kick up the, the fermentable sugars and the alcohol content. And we increased our boil time by a little bit. And so what those the combination of that does is it raises the effective pre-boil gravity. So that way, once you're done with your boil, you have a little bit less volume, but you're hitting the original gravity that you're looking for before you go into fermentation. Yeah, I don't think your, our uh, volumes actually suffered all that much going into the kegs. We pretty much had five gallons of kegs, so I think we hit it pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was it was a common problem and it was the right response you know for, for where it was we also believe that the source of the um of the issue came from the grain itself and i think this is important to note too we we did receive some uh some advice when milling the grains that we received for this uh, brew project that it's a it's healthy to crush but not pulverize the grains that you're using for a mash however i think the level of crush that we received for these grains was not exactly sufficient for what we were trying to do. Yeah, that's highly dependent on everybody's <clears throat> individual systems, really. I mean, uh, on my system, the false, the false bottom I have in mine, I can I can crush it till it's almost flour, and it doesn't give me a stuck sparge at all. So I don't have to worry about that. So that's what I'm used to. And I should have looked a little bit harder at the crush that you guys brought and noticed that it wasn't nearly as fine as what I'm normally used to. So we could have avoided that if I had just thrown it through my mill and then away we went. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can't go back and fix it, so we went forward and fixed it. And, you know, that's you know, that's all you can do sometimes. And You know, but, you know, once <sighs> we went through and we did the boil... And we, you know, with the addition of the uh, dry malt extract and the and the added boil time, we we ended up hitting the targets that we were looking for. Well, that that particular problem is a is why I'm a big proponent of everybody who is an all grain brewer own their own mill because you go to a home that, brew shop. That's great advice. And they they mess with the settings. It might be different from week in week out. You're never gonna be able to get a, a consistent product. So. Spend the fifty bucks, make a Corona grain mill, away you go. Yeah, no, that that that's really good advice. Um, I also want to touch on the uh, the sparge that we did. Now, George and I have done uh, a typical batch sparge uh, in the past, and we've recently moved to a fly sparge. However, uh, Joel taught us uh, some new. Uh, science and some new techniques as far as sparging that, uh, that that we've taken to heart and we've made it part of our regular practice now. Um, George's process, I'm sorry, jo Joel's process for sparging is much slower and much more effective than w what we've done in the past. Joel, can you go into some details about kind of what what yeah. kind of goes into that and, and how that's been effective for you? Sure. I mean, when I started homebrewing, I was a batch sparger. So, you know, you'd throw the grains in and then, you know, drain out the first batch and then immediately throw in more water and then drain that one and you're done. Um, fly sparging is a, a different animal altogether. You get more efficiency, but it takes more time. So... 
I'm not in a big hurry on my brew days, so I prefer the fly sparging process. And with my particular herm setup, it's pretty much you know necessary to do a fly sparge process. So, and I'm sorry, Joel. What, what, why would it be particularly necessary with your herm setup? Well, um, one thing that I really appreciate about my system is uh, getting that crystal clear wort going into the boil kettle um, without with as little proteins as possible. When you're fly spar- when you're uh, batch sparging, you have to mix up the grains and you know sparge, and that kicks up a whole bunch of extra proteins, and you're going to get those into your wort. So that's that's the main reason why I don't batch sparge in my system. Okay. And the result of that extra time with the fly sparge effort, you're you're pulling out more sugars from the uh, from the grains. Yeah, typically. Uh, you know, I've been measuring it. I get about a 93% uh, percent efficiency rate on my mash, okay. which is pretty good. 93% is really, really impressive so, for a homebrew setup. For a homebrew setup, yeah. Yeah, for professionals, they're looking for 98, 99, but for homebrews, 93, really good. Um, I think the recommended, I, I think the target efficiency of most homebrew setups is between 65 and 80. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're first starting out. Um, well, yeah, you know, your your system's a little bit more semi-pro than, yeah. than ours. But <laughs> I was going to um, make mention of that. Joel has one of the more enviable homebrew setups that you'll ever come across. <laughs> well, I don't. But yeah, I mean, the difference. Uh, we're talking about. Um, hold on a second. So mm-hmm. we were talking about uh, fly sparging. Yes. All right. Okay, so with fly sparging, uh, the only thing that really got to worry about is how fast or how slow you're going to sparge. And I've done tests on my own, and uh, I've read books and articles, and I found out that the the most efficient, uh, like the sweet spot for my system is one gallon per four minutes. So that's like one quarter minute. Um, so target between 30 and 40 minutes. For start a, start for, to complete. Yeah, for a five gallon brew, for a five gallon brew day, ten gallon brew day is going to take you about an hour to sparge. So okay. Um. Uh. It, so anyway, yeah. If you go beyond that one quart per minute, uh, line, you're still going to get an increased efficiency, but it's a it's a law of diminishing returns. You know, you're really not going to suck out that much more work yeah. for your extra time. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people are taken aback by how long it takes to sparge on my system, but I say, hey, just relax. Have a homebrew. We'll, we'll get through this. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, the uh, the hop additions were, you know, exactly as designed in the recipe, so don't, we don't need to cover that too much. I mean, it was a simple two-hop addition uh, boil time. We did increase the boil time to 80 minutes uh, to kind of compensate for the uh, the mash limitations and the in the dry malt extract additions that we talked about before. Um, the cooling uh, process is also uh, w- was also a learning piece for uh, for George and I because Joel has a far more efficient <laughs> method of cooling worth than uh, than we've used in the past. That, that's my piece de resistance. Everybody loves the, the chiller I have in my okay. basement. L- let's let's tee this up here. Okay, start to finish to get a beer from boiling temperature to fermentable temperature of sixty-five to eighty. 
took roughly it took a 10 gallon batch 15 minutes bam done 15 minutes people 15 <laughs> minutes <laughs> and that's and that's 15 minutes cooled and in two different fermenters exactly yeah it's it's so, glorious yeah what's the secret joel um, I have a 50-foot copper coil that goes through a 50-foot garden hose in a counterflow system. And so that cold, cold uh, northern Illinois water just uh, chills that down in one pass. So basically as fast as you can flow it through, it'll chill it down to room temperature. So just to, you know, in case... Uh, it's unclear a counterflow system. So, like he says, he he has a, ca- a copper coil actually inside of a garden hose. So, a counterflow system, you have your beer flowing inside the copper coil, and you have cold, cold, cold water throwing through, flowing through the garden hose. So, the two never meet, but it's on the outside of that copper coil, and it's cooling the the wort as it goes through that coil. So, you got well, you said like fifty feet. Yeah, 50 foot. So, you know, picture if you had 50 foot of copper coil laid out on the ground inside of a garden hose. The garden hose is flowing super cold water through it out to some drain. Yeah, and it drains out as boiling hot water. And it drains out as boiling hot water because it takes on all of that temperature. And that work that's going through just gets cold crashed right down and into the fermenter. And it is a rather brilliant system. Um, yeah, I mean it is a bit of overkill. I mean there's there's I make twenty five foot uh, coils for everybody else, and that works pretty well. It usually gets the temperature to within two or three degrees of your tap water. Uh, with a fifty foot coil, it gets it down to one degree within tap water. So you know it's not that huge of a difference, but you know if you got a fifty foot coil, might as well use it. Well, the results speak for itself. You know, 15 minutes to cool 10 gallons, 10 gallons of boiling wort, you know, what what more do you need than that? True, true. Yeah. yeah. People are worried about uh sanitation issues with a a copper coil because, you know, with an immersion system, you throw it in your you throw it in your wort, you're done, you clean it off. You can look and look at the coil and say, "Hey, it's as clean, but with with a, a counterflow system, you can't ever see the inside of it. So you, do you know, is it really clean inside? But um, personally, you, I've never had any infection issues. Uh, all I do at the end of my brew day is just run hot water through it for about 30 seconds. And um, uh, one other thing, <clears throat> for uh, before you use the uh, the chiller, um, you uh, drain some of the wort into a pitcher because there's obviously going to be some residual water in there from the last time, and you don't want that going back into your system. So you drain that off until you see you know, some hops coming out, and then you throw the end of the hose back into your boil kettle, and then um, so you recirculate it a little bit for maybe 60 seconds until you see that the internal temperature of the wort is reading 190 degrees exiting the chiller, right? So that 190 degrees um, basically sterilizes the inside of your chiller. So that's how you're taking care of the, you know, possible infection. Right. Yeah, you right. you're 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 clearing anything that is residual inside of there, and then you're running it through and back into the 
kettle at temperatures that are going to kill anything that's in there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's great. But, at, you know, after you're done, you know, I'm not saying every time, but periodically do you consider running star sand or PBW through your counterflow? I have run um, – I don't use PBW. I use um, – a, a cleaner similar to PBW, which is not nearly as expensive, but it's <laughs> anyway, it's similar, very similar to PBW. Uh, I do run that through like quarterly. Okay. Um, I honestly, nothing much comes out. It's not like it's super dirty water or anything like that. So can't really no, say. No, but it's probably a good idea to yeah. do every yeah, now sure. and again, just to make sure that, you know, you're, you're get everything that's in there. Right. So, right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so that was you know pretty much the end of that that brew day. You know, you had your starter that you made. Now our original recipe had for a five gallon batch one package of our yeast that we used. We we upped it to two packages because we were doing ten gallon. You decided that's not enough. <laughs> um, so you went and got two additional packages, and then on top of that, did a starter. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, why you thought that might be? Yeah, yeah. I use this program online. Uh, it's called MrMalty.com. And, I yeah, those guys definitely, or the person that made that particular application, they don't like to mess around. They say, this is this is the volume you need. And that volume is higher than any other program I've seen. But it's never steered me wrong, so... I went with four packets of yeast for this one based on the date of the packets, and uh, we made a three-liter starter, which was huge, of course. But So just to color this in a little bit more, we had a original gravity that was roughly about 1080. 1090, right? I think it was. 10, yes, 10, 1090. 1090, okay, yeah. okay. And our target final was between 1020 and 1013, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we got 10 gallons of wort chilled, and the target for the yeast would be to bring a 1090 beer down to 1013. Thereabouts, yep. Okay, okay. Well, and with a three-liter starter, that's, I mean, I, you know, what is that in American? Is that, that's a little over a gallon, isn't it? Yes, yes, I believe it is. Okay, so, you know, you have, uh, you know, three liters of extra liquid that are going to go into two different fermenters, so about a liter and a half in each fermenter, in each five-gallon fermenter. And, you know, like you you had let us know, it kind of took off like gangbusters because oh, yeah. it was already started. And uh, Four packets of yeast <laughs> a day. In, how, how long was it in the starter, Joel? Uh, it w- I don't usually make starters very long. I usually do it like uh, 24 to 36 hours ahead of time. And, and that's, that's probably about recommended, isn't it? Um, some people like to make it two or three days ahead that's of time. That's what I've heard, some uh, two, two, two or three, three days okay. beforehand. But, but. Yeah, I've never had a problem with just doing it 24 hours ahead of time. So, And that seems to make sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, either way, it worked. It worked. Uh, you yeah. know, it worked, and, and we got... You know, down to our target final gravity of a ten thirteen. Yeah, we and hit it. I think right on the nose. Actually, I yeah, think ten thirteen was our final. Um, it took. I mean, I remember we kegged the beer exactly seven days after our brew day, and Joel and I had a taste test late one Sunday night, and we both kind of looked at each other and said, "I think we've done good here." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and from our experience here today, I, we we can echo that too. We're very very proud of this beer, and and uh, it was a great brew day, very educational, and we got a great product as a result. So it was a, just a great day all around. Yeah, 
Yeah. And thank you. And thank you, Joel. Thank you, George, for for participating. And I'm I'm thrilled with it. And I can't wait to hear hear further reviews on it. I am glad that you guys chose me to be your first uh, collaboration guy. I I said it before. I'll say it again. We were we were saving it for somebody special. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we're going to we're going to hit pause here real quick and we're going to segue into our uh, segment number three. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, water chemistry. So stay with us. That's what I used to do, too. Yeah. That was our beginning. (laughs) Welcome back to A Nice Place to Brew. I'm Jason. And I'm George. And I'm Joel. (laughs) I'm part of the intro. (laughs) This is great. You are part of the intro. Welcome. Welcome to the club, Joel. Woo! Okay. um, We're going to go into uh, segment number three, uh, and we are going to talk about water chemistry. And I will say on the onset here that I will be yielding heavily to both Joel and George on this, being that they are far more intelligent than I am, <laughs> just in general, and also have some more knowledge on this on this subject than I do. Oh boy, this is so, going to be good. <laughs> so I'm gonna, <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna tee this up here, and and, I, and I'm gonna start off just with a very simple concept. Does the the uh, wa- uh, chemistry of the water that you use in your brew day matter? And in what and in what settings does it matter most? Well, l- let me a- answer that two ways. Um, what's most important is not the the uh, the pH and the water chemistry of the water that you use to heat up, but what is very key is the pH of the actual mash that uh, that uh, that's going on uh, during your brew day. Yep. Now, there's multiple elements that are that are made up of this, um, and we're going to go into each one. But um, I believe everybody who's listening is probably familiar with the concepts of hard versus soft water. And the difference between hard and soft water originates between really the five uh, different uh, elements of water chemistry that we're going to be talking about today, which, uh, which consists of uh, bicarbonate, magnesium, calcium, and the remaining two, Joel, can you help me out here? Uh, there's sodium and chloride and sulfates. There you go. There you go. Uh, so, so the uh, again, what this all boils down to is is a pretty simple concept. Um, in your in your brewer's guide, whether you're an extract brewer or uh, all grain brewer, there should be within the the uh, the data that you're using a target mash pH, and this is important because any variation from this target pH is going to affect the um, the conversion of starches to sugars in your brew day and is also potentially going to create some off flavors that are not desirable for your end product. So from that from that point, I'm going to segue to the more intelligent men in the room and ask, ask for a little bit more <laughs> input. <laughs> the pH uh, can affect, uh, definitely affect the efficiency of your mash. But also it can affect uh, how much your hop flavors pop, how much your maltiness flavors are malty. So th- those are, you know, the prime, the three primary things to worry about for a mash pH. Yeah, it, yeah, that's, that's that's very true. And some, it's something that we've started to pay attention to, taking a, a pH reading of our, um, of our 
of our wort as we go. So, and that's in an all grain scenario where we're actually mashing and everything. Joel, can you touch on the extract a little bit and what people if that are doing extract brewing, what they need to pay attention to? Sure. If uh, you're just doing extract brewing, there's really not a lot to worry about uh, as far as your water chemistry goes. Um, basically, if you're doing extract brews, you only have to worry about if your tap generally tastes good or decent. If it tastes really bad, if it's very sulfuric, has a lot of egg water flavor to it, then you might not want to use it. But if it, in general it tastes okay, and uh, then that's fine. And then the other only thing you have to worry about is if your local tap water uses chlorines or chloramines. Uh, chlorines and chloramines are used to uh, kill bacteria in, in municipal water. Lots of municipalities use them, and your municipality probably does. So, anyway, uh, the Camden tablets are the easiest way to deal with chlorines and chloramines. Um, one small tablet uh, will take care of up to 20 gallons of water. So, on a brew day, in, uh, on my brew day, I always throw in uh, at least one Camden tablet, crush it up, and just stir it into the strike water, and a Camden tablet into the sparge water. That takes care of everything. It's like magic. Before I found out about uh, Camden tablets, our beers were tasting like medicinal and band-aid-y. It was terrible. And uh, and that's from using strictly raw local tap water, correct? Correct. Yeah. So so for our friends that are are doing the extract, you know, when you're when you're doing an extract brew day, you're using four to five gallons of water. You know, you're saying these Camden tablets do orders of magnitude bigger than that. True. Do they need to worry about putting too much in? No. In general, uh, no. It's really not going to affect the water. So you could use one tablet uh, for five gallons, one tablet for 20 gallons. It's really not going to affect the flavor that much. If you're worried about it, you could split the tablet in half, but you don't have to. Okay. So. All right. So, okay, so for extract guys, that's that's what they need to worry about. Um, the other cheat that we've used in the past is to buy spring water, you know, like yes. Deer Park spring water and things. Because a lot of those are, are balanced um, and, you know, will fit most appropriate styles, right? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, just using straight-up spring water from the local grocery store or buy them in the jug works great. Sure. So, okay, so that works for the extract, guys. How, how about as you're moving into more of the all-grain and you're starting to notice some of those off flavors in there? I know it becomes more important because you're mashing with that water for a long time and you're not boiling out those things quickly. And So what do people need to worry about in an all-grain scenario? All right. So for all-grains, you have to... Uh worry about the chlorine chloramine thing which I already talked about and then there's the mineral content of your water uh, to find out what's in your water which minerals are important and what to do about them uh, to find out what's in your water the most reliable method of uh, choosing your or finding out what's in your water is by submitting a sample to word labs um, um, so Ward Labs is the most, re most reliable method. I've used them a couple times before. You have to send them a sample through the mail, and then they send you a report back. It's kind of pricey. It's $27. But at least you know for a fact what's going into your system, and that's, you know, that's good comfort. Um, another thing you can do is go to your local municipal water website and find out 
Uh, if they have a mineral content report on their website, chances are they don't. So you're going to have to call your local water department and then ask them for that mineral content report, and you're going to have to talk to some receptionist who says, what What do you need now? <laughs> and then three people later, you'll finally get a technician on the phone who knows what you're talking about. But that said, I mean, it might be a little bit of a pain, but do check your municipal water website first because sure. it might be on there. And and second, once you do get that, they usually provide that for free, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so our, in, uh, in Joliet, our, our local municipality does a water test once a year and... Uh, so let's see. Which I imagine is common for most municipalities. I mean, I mean, I mean, water health and water chemistry is important over the over the scheme of a municipality. Yeah, in talking with uh, our local water person, she said that uh, the mineral content of our local water does not change significantly over the year, you know, over the decade. So they just do a you know a check once a year to make sure that uh, nothing's gone completely screwy with our water system so so which minerals do they check for which ones are actually important in this process so for brewing purposes uh there's uh six different mineral uh counts that we're concerned about there's in parts per million there is calcium magnesium sodium chloride sulfites and bicarbonates or alkalinity also known as alkalinity um you don't have to worry about any of these minerals if you decide just to use 100% distilled water or reverse osmosis water, either from your home reverse osmosis water system or by going to a local grocery store and getting RO water from them. But you'll still need to use, uh, I highly recommend using a spreadsheet to figure out how much in minerals to add since you'll be using water without any minerals, which is generally a, a pretty bad idea. Well, yeah, if you use distilled or RO water, it's sucking all those minerals out and it's sucking all those bicarbonates out and everything, and so you're left with just H2O, right? Yeah, so yeah it's, it's going to be a pretty bland beer. It's going to be very bland. You yeah. know, you'd be surprised how much those minerals really uh, affect what you're doing. So, right. you know, you do have to then, if you're going to use that, which we do, mm-hmm. uh, then you have to worry about adding those minerals back in. Yes, which yeah. is uh, not as hard as it sounds, really. If you have one of these spreadsheets, that you know, it's pretty easy to figure out what you need to add in. So, Did we mentioned what these spreadsheets are. We have not yet. We're okay. getting there. Okay. All so. right. Some of the my favorite spreadsheet to use is called Easy Water Calculator. Just do a Google search for Easy Water Calculator, Easy, and uh, you'll find it. It's a very simple spreadsheet. Probably the most simple one to figure out. Um, and uh, it, it seems to be reliable for me, so I personally don't have a complaint about it. And, you know, that's so in, in using that easy water calculator, mm-hmm. and, you know, you, ha- you, you start with the water report that you have. Right. And then you have a target water that you want to get to. Is there, like, water profiles on that spreadsheet that they this have? This particular or? one, no. There, okay. are, there are some spreadsheets that say, oh, well, if you're brewing an English IPA, then you want to duplicate the Burton-on-Trent water profile from Burton-on-Trent in England because that's what they've always done. Personally, I don't like that theory because uh, it's going off the assumption that the Burton-on-Trent breweries don't modify their mineral content and that's that's, fair that's not true they do so you're kind of like chasing a you know a ghost 
So, okay, so if you can't mimic or, or target a water profile, how do you know for a different style what well, your target should be? And, you know, so what you should adjust towards? Um, well, the Easy Water Calculator doesn't do any of that stuff. It just basically tells you at the bottom of the spreadsheets, it says these are your results from your water profile. Your calcium, ideally, for any beer style, will be between 50 and 150. Your magnesium count will be anywhere between 10 and 30. Sodium, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's that's what it go, goes off of. And uh, that has worked for me. Um just to clarify one point about that, this is not taking into account style. Is that correct? Uh, no, because the the calculator, you input your grains and what type of grains you're using. Oh, so oh, okay. all of okay. that gets tabulated into these formulas. Okay. So so it's more generalized, but it'll get you in the ballpark of where you should be, and and you sh- and you can know if your water is well off of where it should be, right? Yeah. I don't I don't want to shun too many people from the theory that oh, if I'm going to make an English IPA, I'm going to duplicate the Burton on Trent water. I mean, it it has worked for professional brewers and home brewers alike. If you're comfortable with that thought and you want to go that route, by all means, sure. try one of these spreadsheets and see if it works for you. But I don't know. Personally, I just, in my mind, I just don't like the idea that I'm chasing this ghost that may may not do anything for me. So, And that makes a lot, of, a lot more sense. And, and to be looking at the profile of the beer itself, like this spreadsheet does, this makes way more sense to me than trying to duplicate a specific municipality's water profile. Right, right. Yeah, so that's good advice. Thank you. All yeah. right. So... Uh, that said, if you wanted to use one that did target that, um, we we know of a, a number of different ones sure, that do sure. target different profiles. Uh, another really popular one that uh, uses that particular uh, profile setup is called Bruin Water, B-R-U uh, apostrophe N, water calculator. Uh, it's made by Martin Bruingard. He's a very well-respected uh, chemist and uh, home brewer. He's uh, written a number of uh, in very incisive articles and books about water brewing chemistry. So, you know, he knows a thing or two about water brewing. So if he does the profile thing, then, you know, it can't be that bad. Yeah, and there's also, we we uh, have talked about a number of different times, and we do all of our recipes in uh, Beersmith. Mm-hmm. And in the Beersmith 2 uh, update that they did, um, there's actually a water profile calculator. That uh, you can do they use. do the Burton on Trent thing? In that, that exactly, okay. yeah. They have the different water profiles loaded in. So if you're making a Pilsner and you want to um, mimic Pilsen water, like straight Pilsen water, you can say, I want to target this, here's what I'm at, mm-hmm. and it'll give you the different um, things you need to put in to adjust to that. Yeah. So there's a couple options that way as well. I don't know if you've seen the product out on the market these days uh, at homebrew stores. You can buy little packets of minerals. We've and- used them. Oh, have you used them? Yeah. For just let's let's talk more about that. All right. So the packets that you're talking about are designed to be used with RO or distilled water, right? Basically, right. water with no minerals whatsoever. And so what these packets do is that for every five gallons, you buy one packet, and the idea is that from distilled water, it will take you to a mineral content that'll be good for a different style and alcohol content. Yeah, I was going to say, usually what they'll specify is a certain color of your beer mm-hmm. and also a, a target uh, f- uh, alcohol content as well. 
Yeah, so it'll give you the original gravity. So for one that we made recently, it said that it would do up to 1080 and with a golden color. And that was exactly what we were going for. So we bought the distilled water from the grocery store, and we bought one of these little packets. And so when you're making your strike water, you just dump the packet in, and you make your strike water with that, and then you know it, it adjusts from there. How did it work? Fairly well. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. It's 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 kind of a quick shortcut way to healthy water chemistry. Yeah. I think is what it boils down to. Well, that's great. I'm glad. Uh, that those packets are out there for people who really don't want to delve into this nightmare of a topic. <laughs> we do. We just haven't yet. <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. All right. So that's, that's the mineral additions. There's a couple of things that mineral additions do. The ones that are important to me are, um, the chloride to sulfite ratio. Um, so depending on how much chlorides and sulfites are in your beer, uh, that and that particular ratio, the low ratio will give you um, uh, an enhanced bitterness. So if you're making an IPA, you might want to do that. So make your really, you know, your your bitterness really pop. If you want uh, to do like a Scotch ale or something that's hugely malty, go the other route and. Uh, really lower that uh, ratio so uh, the maltiness pops. Well, you have these different ratios and these different um, profiles, that, but how do you achieve them? So you have, you know you're at a certain water level and you want to change it. What minerals can you add in order to be able to adjust for that? Okay. Kind of flashing back to the second segment, we added lactic acid, gypsum, and calcium chloride to achieve our ideal profile. Right. So I imagine those are probably common, commonly used additives for water. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Okay. Uh, lactic acid is definitely uh, popular for uh, reducing pH in the, in the homebrew market. Uh, professional brewers use other kinds of acids that are, that are more concentrated that aren't exactly helpful for homebrewers because for a five-gallon batch, you would have to add like a tenth of a milliliter. <laughs> so that's just not... It's a volume question yeah, at that point. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so anyway, lactic acid is good for reducing uh, pH on a homebrew scale. Uh, there's gypsum, which adds calcium and sulfites or sulfates. Uh, there's calcium chloride, which uh, adds calcium and chloride. Uh, there's Epsom salt, which adds magnesium and sulfites or sulfates. Uh, those... Let's see, there's gypsum, calcium chloride, Epsom salt, and lactic acid. Those are the four that I use. So, so those are the four that are most commonly used, and none of those elements are particularly expensive either. Oh, so. no, they're pretty, you know, all of them are definitely available at your homebrew store, except for, I don't think they sell Epsom salt, but you can get Epsom salt pretty much anywhere. Right. Um, and can you use, like, standard store Epsom salt? Or Oh, yeah, I yeah. do. Yeah, okay, so. all right. Um, That's good advice. Yeah. There's one thing that I've never used, and it is it is useful for homebrewers who actually have the opposite problem that we have, which is if your water is really soft and you need to raise the pH hmm. of your homebrew. Um, there's a couple things that you can use to raise the pH. There's uh, slaked lime, which is sold at homebrew stores, and there's a uh, baking soda 
which is readily available to anybody. And there's chalk, which... Uh, like chalkboard chalk? <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> I wouldn't go buy, you know... Crayola chalk and throw it in there, but <laughs> right. you know, yeah. but yeah, it's really problematic to use chalk just because uh, it's hard to go from a solid and, and like bring it into solution, you know. Right. So not recommended. Don't you know? But uh, can I pose one question about phosphoric acid? Is I, I see that as a as a common um, element that's used in water chemistry. Okay. Okay. Now the effect of phos is to lower pH. Yep. Is that is that the net effect of it? Yep, that's all it's used for. Okay. Okay. Um, a lot of people uh, use phosphoric acid uh, on the professional scale. I think that's the one that, you know, you can get it in concentrations, which is really concentrated, so that's why they don't use it at homebrew much. Is that the main <coughs> difference between phosphoric acid and Sorry. Is that the main difference between phosphoric acid and lactic acid? Is just usually the concentration. Um, well, lactic acid is definitely easier to use. I think uh, you can use phosphoric acid in in um, a lesser dilutions, um, and I've read that it definitely uh, affects the flavor less because there are limitations to lactic acid. If you use a, a certain amount in any five gallon batch over a certain amount in any five-gallon batch, you're going to start to taste that lactic sourness. Okay. That's yeah. happened on a number of occasions with my beers. Because that's the way that you can actually <coughs> that's the way that you can actually kettle sour a beer is yeah, by yeah. adding lactic acid to exactly, it, right? right. So, and that's mm-hmm. during the boil? That's during the uh, mash phase. During the mash phase, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that'll add a, a sour note to the beer without doing like an open fermenter fermentation or anything like that right 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 okay so, so yeah you want to be careful with the with the lactic acid so we'll look into and try to put out into there into the world what kind of concentration you want to avoid to to achieve that in my experience anything over i'd say uh eight millimeters per five gallon batch you're really starting to uh you're going to start to notice something after that eight milliliters eight milliliters eight milliliters per okay. five gallon batch Maybe less, depending on how sensitive you were to that kind of flavor. How much did we do? You, do you happen to have how much we put in? Uh, for our particular beer, we only used four milliliters for a ten-gallon batch. Okay, so we were good. Off. So, in conclusion, here, the, I mean, in the end, I think there's a couple takeaways from uh, from a home brewer out there, and I guess the first thing is. Water chemistry is something to take take into consideration as far as your P, as far as your pH and for your mash because the pH of your mash matters because it's going to affect the health of your mash, right? And also, as far as as far as additions, um, the sources of of good information is both the the source of your local water if you're using local water. And also the the calculators that you've uh, the, that uh, that Joel had mentioned. Do you want to ro- uh, make mention of those one more time? Sure, sure. Uh, there's the Easy Water calculator. Okay. Uh, there's the Bruin Water calculator, B R U apostrophe N, and then there's the Bruin Brewer's Friend Advanced Water calculator, and then there's the one that's built into Beersmith itself. There you so. there you go. So th- those are three really good good and healthy sources for a home brewer to. You know, pay appropriate attention and manage your water chemistry as as best desired. 
Yeah, and so it comes down to the mash pH to help your efficiency, and then it also comes down to just taste, right? Yep. So, I mean, you, you're 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 probably at this point producing some some pretty good beer. You're using the you know your standard water or your spring water, and you're producing some pretty good beer. If you mess with the p the the mineral content a little bit. You know, you might be able to kick that up to a little bit, like the next notch, and yeah, get some definitely. even better tasting beer. So, so maybe maybe the line that it crosses is from good to great. There you go. <laughs> yes, there yeah. you go. Definitely. Well, we've always said that, you know, and I'm not sure how much we said on this show, but we've always said that you do chemistry and you get beer, and this is just an extension <laughs> of that. It is. I've got two more points I got to make about water. I'd be remiss if I didn't say these things. Let's hear it. Uh, testing pH in your match is a nightmare, and I hate it, but <laughs> it has to be done. Um, is, do you, is your go-to for that strips, or do you use uh, a more more technological piece? I've used strips. I've used a $28 pH meter. I've used a $90 pH meter, and now I have a $130 pH meter. Holy so you crap. can see why I keep spending more money on this topic because we it's have- important, people. PH meters are horrible, and I hate how expensive and unreliable they are, but that's that's the nature of the beast. So don't buy a PH re- meter that only reads in tenths because that's not nearly accurate enough for our purposes. Ideally, you'd like to get a PH meter that has auto temp correction, and it has at least two-point calibration. Um, the one that I personally use right now is, is the Hatch Pocket Pro Plus PH tester. Like I said, it costs about $130 shipped, and the replacement probes, which you do have to replace, are $90 shipped. Good so, Lord. yeah. All right. Yeah. So, um, so, so there's level of seriousness to this. And if, you're, <laughs> if you're thinking, if you're thinking, oh, I'm gonna just buy some of those pH strips, uh, don't even bother. Yeah, it, we've not had good luck with the yeah, pH strips. It's you save your money. Don't even bother using them. Just use the spreadsheet and hope for the best. And at that point, um, the $28 pH meters, which only read in tenths, they're good for checking your star sand to see if that's still good. But actually reading pH of your mesh, no, no, don't even bother. <laughs> um, so like I said, it's got to go into the hundreds, and it should be calibration. You know, you can calibrate it with it, two points, like seven or in four, or four and seven, or four and ten. Anyway, uh, the other thing I've learned is the brewing books and water spreadsheets say uh, sparge water additions. When they say sparge water additions, they don't mean sparge water additions. They mean boil kettle additions. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So uh, when you go to throw, yeah, the minerals in for the sparge water, quote unquote, additions, throw them in the boil kettle. And that's prior to the boil? Yep. Okay. And that's it. Okay. I've said my piece. <laughs> well, I mean, as we said, you're, you're a wealth of information. You've been doing this for a long time. Uh, there's a reason that you're the founder of the Joliet Brewers Guild. And, uh, and you know, it's it was uh, education for us in water chemistry. And um, and we wanted to pass that on to everybody that's listening out there. So. Oh, my Lord. Yes. If you're really, really interested in the water chemistry uh, there is a book written by John Palmer and Colin Kaminsky called Water, A Comprehensive Guide for Brewers. I know six people who have bought this book. Zero of them have made it through. 
Uh, you could be the first. It's possible. If you uh, suffer from insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the people I know are professional brewers, and they haven't even made it through this book. But anyway, it is a plethora of knowledge, and it's going to make you wish that you had spent more time paying attention in high school in high chemistry school class. <laughs> but good luck to you. All right. Anyways, uh, we'll close this off with uh, with a couple of social media links. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at A Nice Place to Brew. You can check us out on Twitter at Nice Place to Brew. You can also check out uh, check us out for the Joliet Brewers Guild at JolietBrewersGuild.org. Do I have that right, uh, yep, Joel? That okay. is correct, sir. Uh, we meet the second uh, Wednesday of each month at the Chicago Street Pub in, uh, in Joliet, Illinois. They've been gracious hosts to us really since the beginning. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you guys have been around for quite a while. Um, I'm glad to have you guys on board. Oh, th- thank you very much. No, really, I mean, J- Joel, uh, I'm, George and I are in huge debt to the Joliet Brewers Guild for the knowledge that they've passed on to us. Uh, I mean, for the, um, uh, for the friendships that we've made, for the knowledge that we've gained, and for the better product that we've, that we've made as a, as a result. So, and the dues you still owe. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> that, I keep forgetting the check. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> no, no, a, a huge thank you to the Joliet Brewers Guild and a huge thank you to Joel for all the knowledge he's passed on to us for being our first collaboration uh, brew project. There's really no more appropriate uh, person uh, for for us than uh, than for, for you and, and for a project like this. And, and I, think, uh, I think the results of the... Um, of the and the reviews for this uh, project are really going to speak for itself. So a huge thank you to you. Well, you are welcome, sir. I uh, started the Joliet Brewers Guild just primarily so you know people could get together and learn from each other. So that's that's what we're here for. That's awesome. Well, thank you, sir. And as we uh, close out with every show, as our glasses are now empty, <laughs> it takes a lot of good beer to make great beer. Cheers. 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 Cheers.